So have you ever had one of those nights? You know what I'm talking about? When the what ifs come barging through your door? You know, you're, you're asleep and they start waking you up. Hey, hey, you, wake up. And they paint all sorts of pictures of dark, dangerous, and damning scenarios about your welfare, your future, your kids, your friends, your nation. They scream, they yell, they make a fuss, they refuse to let you go back to sleep. You try praying them away. They're kind of like ringing around the collar. You say, God, make them go away. You even want angels to come down and usher them out the door, right? Like, Lord, please, just send Gabriel. He'll scare them. He'll get them out the door. But they continue to grow more insistent. They rummage through your drawers. They talk about all you're going to lose. And they begin to divvy up all your prized possessions among them. It's at times like these that you must draw from the treasury of your heart the things that you have stored in there to combat, resist, and dismiss these intruders. I have found that the only way to escape these intruders is to go so deep into the treasury of my heart, replaying God's word, rehearsing God's past faithfulness to me, retelling the testimonies of others, and repeating the promises of God that they have to, and not coming out till they're gone. You see, our hearts are like storage units. The Bible uses the terms mind and heart to speak of the same thing, our treasure house. It's about the things that we are storing within our memory banks. Years ago, I had a friend, and she was one of the first um, computer programmers, and she used to go and train companies on how to use computers. Yes, I have been alive for a long time. In fact, when I was a child, computers used to fill buildings and rooms. You know, and, and never mind. Why go there? But she said when she used to go to these companies to train these people on how to use a computer, there was always visible disappointment when people realized that computers were really just big, I mean, small storage centers to store information, store communication, and store data. A computer is only as effective as the information that has been put in it, the applications programmed in it, the knowledge and research by others that is put into it, your own pictures and documents that you've stored in that. In the same way, our hearts are only as strong or rich as what we have placed in them. In Matthew 12, 35, Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasury of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasury of his heart brings forth evil things. Matthew 13, 52, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure, treasure things old and new. So in other words, when we're receiving the word of God, we are storing up old treasures and new treasures. Then again, in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus tells us not to store up material treasures that are subject to moths and corrosion, decay, and thieves, but rather to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where, and you know this, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think I told you about years ago, I was in uh, Curve's exercise class, and I was over to the side just doing my stretches. I had finished my circuits. And this one girl was saying, who said where your heart is, your treasure is also? And I had stayed really low key in this class. And one person goes, I believe it was Buddha. <laughs> I'm sitting there just like, I can't believe this, but I want to be quiet. Someone else said, Shakespeare. 
And, and finally, I, I can't remember what the other suggestions were, but there I am, I'm stretching. They haven't really heard me talk because actually I'm shy when I'm not at church. And all of a sudden, now you remember I'm stretching so my hands are up and I go, Jesus, Jesus. And they looked at me like, what is she doing right now with her stretches, like a worship moment, you know? And I said, no, no, Jesus said it. And they're like, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. I said, it's like, I said, it's Matthew 6, 21 or 22. Because I didn't have my Bible with me. But I said, that's where he said it. He's the one who said it. He said for us to lay up treasures in heaven because where our treasures are, what our treasures are, will determine the status of our heart. And not only that, but the words that come out. And it's what we have to give to others. Some treasuries in people's hearts are really scary. They look like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, you know, where you see that big pile of treasure, but you also see all those like half drunk bottles of wine, right? And you see skeletons and you see ragged clothes and you see cobwebs and there might be some treasury, but it's got all these cobwebs and some people's hearts are like that. They have skeletons rather than treasure. They have unforgiveness. They're storing up disappointments. Oh, they can tell you every time they were ever disappointed. They can tell you every bitter drink that they have ever sipped. They can tell you about all the people that have injured them and gotten away with it. They can rehearse these things again and again. And even if there is gold in that heart, it is so covered with cobwebs and surrounded by skeletons that it's actually repulsive rather than beautiful. God has given all of us, each of us, wondrous treasures to store in our hearts, to enrich our lives, to help us to embrace every invent of life, to give us expectation in this life. These treasures include God's word, which is the scripture, his work in the lives of individuals. This is what we find in scripture who trusted him, his principles, his promises. God has also given his past faithfulness to us. If you would recount, you would find that God has been so faithful to you. The other night, I just sat down and I wrote a list of all, not all, it was no way extensive, but I just kind of the major moments that I know God was providentially working in my life. I, I wrote down the little Bible study that I just happened to go to in Huntington Harbor where I met Brian Broderson. You know, just all those events that just seemed like, oh, uh, when the call to Vista. You know, just, you know, the call to England. You know, all these providential times where you say that was so God, it couldn't have been anything else. In Psalm 37, 3, it's talking in Psalm 37 about the evil man when he seems like he's so large, like this tree just spreading his branches, like he'll never be moved. He's so substantial. He said, in those times, commit, you know, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Don't leave, don't run. Stay where you are, but Feed. Let your food be the faithfulness of God. Think about all those times that God has been so faithful to come, come through with his promises, to come through with the principles in his word, to come through. I found these old journals that date back to the early 80s, even to when I was pregnant with my daughter, Kristen, who's now 35 years old. And as I was reading them, it was all these stories about God's faithfulness that I forgot, that I wrote down as a young mother. I got so excited, I photographed the pages and I sent one to Kristen and one to my son, Char. Like, look how God was working in your lives, even before you were born. And even when you were so little, 
Look at these promises God gave me then that are now fulfilled. When I was looking at a little baby girl, when I was chasing around my hyperactive son. Oh, the glory of the Lord. I found, I was reading about a tough time for Brian and I when he was, um, before we had a diagnosis of chronic fatigue and the doctor was telling me that Brian needed a psychologist. When I had two young children and we had a big move to Vista and took over church where half the people left immediately because Brian wasn't taking testimonies on Sunday morning. <laughs> and the head usher was using the offering to buy donuts. How God blessed, how God blessed even in those times and how God came through again and again. You know, we read in the scriptures that the children of Israel were always in trouble because they forgot. They forgot all the things God had done for them. I, I also bring back to my mind in times like this, the testimony of others. That's part of the treasury we can have in our hearts. I love biographies, Christian biographies. I love missionary biographies. Um, Tom Doyle, Joanne's wife, uh, husband, wrote the book, Killing Christians. It's so uplifting. It sounds so depressing, but it is such an uplifting book. George Mueller's bio by Roger Steer. I cried when it was over, and I, I just, people I want to see in heaven. I want to see George Mueller and see if he still has his pockets filled with candy. The Life of D.L. Moody by William R. Moody and Fit for the Masters used by F.B. Meyer. These are some of the books that have so blessed me, come back to my memory, are stored in my heart, are part of the treasury. God's personal promises become part of that treasury. Second Peter 1.4 tells us that we have exceedingly great and precious promises. And you know why they're so precious? Not because they're powerful alone, but because they're personal. Because God's word has this way of coming right to your heart and say, this one's for you. This one's for you. And you can claim it. Sometimes we get these personal promises from our personal devotions. Sometimes they come in a song, sometimes by another believer, sometimes in a sermon. But we know that it's a personal promise from the Lord, and we are meant to take that promise and put it into the treasury of our heart, something that we are going to keep and guard. Mary was a woman who knew how to amass a spiritual treasury in her heart. In Luke 2, 19, and then in 51, we're told that Mary kept all these things in her heart. Now, in verse 19, the word kept is the Greek word scenario. Scenario. And it means to preserve, to keep in mind, lest it be forgotten. The NIV and the ESV translate this as Mary treasured these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart or she gave value, great value to these things. In Luke 2.51, another word is used for the word Mary kept these things in her heart and that's the word dietario. And it's translated again in NIV and ESV as treasured because the idea is that, again, they have great value. These are the things that she wanted to keep, hold on to, guard, never forget. And it means to continually be on guard, to be alert, to hold on to these things, to carefully hold. But we're told not only did she hold these things, not only did she keep these things, but Mary pondered them in her heart. She thought about them over and over and over again. You know, meditation means to chew the cud. That's, that's, they actually take this agricultural term. And whenever you read, you, know, you shall meditate day and night. It would be, you shall chew the cud day and night. If we were translating word for word, that's what we would get. You shall chew the cud day and night. Because what 
does a cow do? Well, what does a cow do? Well, let me tell you, I'm wearing my cowboy boots. Let me tell you what a cow does. A cow eats the grass, which is not good for human consumption because a cow has four-chamber stomach, so it can take that grass in, add it to the digestive juices, but even then, it's not digested enough, so a cow brings it back up to get the full flavor, the full nutrition, and to fully digest. So what are we to do with the Word of God? We're to, we're to take it in, but then we're to bring it back to our mind and our awareness that we might get the full flavor, the full nutrition, and fully digest it. Fully digest it so it can go to every part of our body to strengthen us. What was Mary's treasury like? What was found in her heart? When Luke went to Mary to interview her, this treasury spilled out. Mary took Luke to the very treasury of her heart and she opened it before him and she pulled out gems and gold and diamonds. The treasury in Mary's heart enabled her to endure the events of her life. As we look at Luke 2, 1 through 7, we see that Mary and Joseph had to travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We see it so romantically, but it was anything but romantic. She's in the third trimester of pregnancy, and there is nothing romantic about being nine months along in your pregnancy. And let me just say this for the record, there is no record of Mary riding a donkey. They were a poor couple. When they go to the temple, as we'll see in a few more verses, they offered the poorest sacrifice. There probably was no donkey because donkey was for the, the wealthier people. It was to be publicly registered as a descendant of David, a very dangerous thing in those days, given the climate of political ambition, Herod's murderous demeanor toward any perceived threat to his throne. And they had to go and be publicly registered. And not only that, why are they going to Bethlehem? Besides the spiritual reason, God getting them there, it's to pay taxes. Who, who wants to travel 90 miles in the last trimester of pregnancy to be assessed for how much you owe. And, and this wasn't something like you knew by tax table how much you were going to have to pay. It wasn't that there were concrete rules that you could abide by and you would know. This, these taxes, were an onerous financial burden. And those who collected them were known for being unscrupulous and arbitrary. And there was no telling how much they would charge. Bethlehem is overcrowded. There's no rooms available at the inn. They must camp in a stable, which was usually located in the courtyard of an inn or a house, surrounded by rooms that have curtains so people could keep watch to make sure that their, their cow or their sheep or their donkey or whatever livestock, because that was their greatest possession, was not stolen in the middle of the night. So that way they could keep an eye on things that were going on. And it's there that Mary labors and gives birth to the Son of God. And she wraps him in swaddling cloths and places him in a feeding trough. Because of God's promises to Mary, she could embrace even the hardship because she knew that God was birthing his own son through her the son of the highest, a savior. No doubt it was worth it because she couldn't wait to see his face. The anticipation of what does my Messiah look like? Oh, aren't you so excited someday because we have the promise that we will see him face to face and we will go through a labor which is called death but on the other side, we will see his face. Fanny Crosby, who wrote many of the hymns that you would recognize that we sing, was blinded at birth by a doctor's mistake. And people had said to her, aren't you upset? Aren't you bitter about this? And she would say, oh, no, because the first face I will ever see 
is that of Jesus, my Savior, my Messiah, my King. Can you imagine? Mary was saying, it's going to be worth the pain. It's worth the traveling to Bethlehem because I'm about to see the face of my Messiah. She would not only see God's glory, his own son, but Mary would be able to embrace him and to hold him in her arms. But not only was Mary enabled by the promises of God, you know, this treasury of promises put into her heart, but she was enriched by the testimony of shepherds. More riches came to her as these shepherds appeared in the middle of the night, verses 8 through 20. And oh, what a testimony they had to share with Mary. They had come to see Jesus, the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a feeding trough. Because an angel had told them that's how they would recognize the Messiah, the Savior. And they told both Mary and Joseph how they were in the fields with their flocks in the very, very dark of night when suddenly an angel appeared before them and a glorious light shone round about them, lighting up the field. I wonder if Mary wanted to ask them, was he big? Was his name Gabriel? Did he have this air of authority? Maybe they did talk about that. I wonder if Joseph recognized this angel as the one that had come to him in a dream and told him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But the angel's message was similar to what Mary and Joseph had both heard. He started out with the same phrase, do not be afraid. That familiar phrase that every angel must utter to men before they give the promise. And this angel in verses 11 through 12 of Luke chapter 2 had said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Then the shepherds no doubt told Mary how the sky was filled with an angelic host that chorused glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. The shepherds then went with haste and found it just as the angels had told them. And when they had beheld Jesus, they left praising and glorifying God for what they had seen and heard. And they told everyone. So it wasn't just Mary that was enriched, but everyone they talked to about Jesus. They got people wondering at the things told them by the shepherds. Now, Mary was enriched by their testimony. And through their testimony, she learned more about Jesus. And again, she pondered these things in her heart. And that word is symbolo, or it means to compile together. Again, to put more and more into the treasury of her heart, to think about it and to add it to the, to the, to the storehouse of your heart. She realized suddenly the greatness of the one she had born, one that was announced by angels. And not just one angel, but a sky filled with angels. One who cared about shepherds. That he would be a savior for all people. That he was the Messiah. That he was Lord. The word kurios. The same word translated in the Old Testament as Yahweh. That he would be a savior that he would say, and finally, that he was accessible. You will find him. Next, Mary was enthralled 
verses 21 through 38, by the actions and words of Simeon and Anna. By this time, Jesus has been circumcised, and we know on the eighth day, the child is given the name, and Jesus had been given his name, Yeshua, really, meaning Savior or God saves. This name was um, given by the angel to Joseph. You shall name him Jesus, Matthew 121, for he shall save his people from their sins. It was the name revealed to Mary, as we read about in Luke chapter 1. So he had gotten this name officially. But now Mary and Joseph are going into the temple for Mary's purification. And according to Leviticus 12, verses 2 through 8, Exodus 13, 2, 12 and 15, when a child was born, the first child, there was to be a sacrifice brought to the temple for the mother's purification. Usually it was a lamb. But if those who were coming were too impoverished to afford a lamb, they could give two turtle doves or two pigeons that they caught. Perhaps because of the corruption in the temple at that time, a lamb was too exorbitant a price for Mary and Joseph to pay. But following the law, they brought the two turtle doves. Now, at that time, only the priests could enter into the temple. So Mary and Joseph are out in the courtyard meeting with a priest, presenting their sacrifice, when all of a sudden, this man, Simeon, comes rushing in, and he's older, and he grabs the baby out of Mary's arms and no doubt holds it up and declares, now your servant can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Here is the glory of the Jews. Here is the most glorious thing to ever happen to the nation of Israel. And I've seen it. Here is the light, the revelation to the Gentiles of who God is and his salvation. Now, Mary and Joseph are enthralled. These are things that perhaps they hadn't considered or thought about before. But here, Simeon, he recognizes this one couple among hundreds of other couples this impoverished couple, this is the one he's been compelled at this moment to come to the temple. And it's a courtyard, it's outside, and he sees them, and he comes, and again, he takes the Messiah out of their arms, Yahshua, and he holds them up. Simeon was no stranger to the temple. He was known as a prophet, he had been told by the Lord that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. People knew about these promises. Simeon then blessed Mary and Joseph and prophesied about the child, saying, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be spoken against. Then to Mary personally, he said, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. How unique this revelation was. So great is Jesus that he was announced by angels. So humble he was born in a stable and worshiped by shepherds. So incredible that he would literally be not for the rising of Israel, but for the falling and rising of Israel. That something painful would take place with the Messiah's life. Something that would make Mary feel as if a sword had gone through her own heart. At that same time, Anna, a woman known at the temple grounds, 
She was a widow. She was about 84 years old. She had served God with prayers and fastings, saw Jesus, saw Simeon, saw Mary and Joseph. And at that moment, she began to give thanks. And from that day forward, she talked about Jesus to any and all who came to Jerusalem looking for the redemption or a new life, forgiveness of sins, to buy back wasted time. Simeon gave Mary even greater insights to this child. Again, insights that would enthrall her, enthrall in, in that it would pique her curiosity and she would want to search out these things. He would be a light to the Gentiles, the hope of the Gentiles, that correlated with what the angels said when they said good news, good tidings for all people. A revelation of God and salvation to the Gentiles. The ultimate glory or culmination for all God intended for the nation of Israel. That was what God had spoken to her when she spoke her magnificent as you promised to Abraham and to our fathers forever. Again, she learned that there would be pain and suffering with this child. He'd be for the fall of many the rising of others. He would be a sign that would be spoken against, not widely received. A sword or pain-like sword would pierce her own heart. Through his life, the thoughts of many would be exposed. Finally, Mary embraced the work of Jesus. Luke 2, 39 through 51. Mary watched as Jesus grew, became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and she saw the grace of God upon his life. Can you imagine just watching this child? I mean, I, I am so blessed to see the work the Lord has done in all of my children. But I can tell you, it, it wasn't like I was watching them strong. Strong in spirit, yes, but not this spirit. Filled with wisdom, that didn't come till after 20. But seeing the grace, yes, but not this kind of grace. <laughs> upon his life. But Mary, even Mary, the chosen one of the Lord, wandered away from Jesus. Three times a year, at three different feasts, all the mills in Israel were required to present themselves, Deuteronomy 16, 16. One was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, culminating in Passover. And it's this feast that Mary and Joseph go to and at that time, people would travel in these caravans from whatever city you were in. So they no doubt traveled with a caravan of people from Nazareth with lots of children, lots of supplies and tents and bringing sometimes their own animals and food uh, to sustain them. You know, we sometimes when we're going camping, what do we bring? Uh, uh, ice chest, right? Well, their ice chest was usually a cow, you know, to provide the, the milk that they needed every morning and those things. And during this travel, they would usually be singing as they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a higher elevation. So even though it's um, on a map, you know, south, it's always up to Jerusalem because it's on a mountain. So they might have been singing Psalms 120 through 134. But with so many children, so many responsibilities, so many people, and so many distractions, Mary and Joseph were already one day's journey away from Jerusalem when they suddenly realized that they didn't have Jesus. Probably Mary's like, Joseph, where's Jesus? And he says, I thought he was with you. And she said, well, I thought he was with you. Well, maybe he's with the kids. They go to the kids, hey, have you seen Jesus? Um, no. Well, didn't he come out with you? Mm -mm. And as they made more and more inquiries, they found out that Jesus was not there. When Char was three years old, I used to keep him, he was so hyperactive. He's a pastor now, good news. Hyperactive pastor. We used to keep him, you know, in a stroller but he learned to unlatch the stroller. And my daughter, Kristen, would always walk very slowly. And Char was always racing ahead. So I was always pulled in two different directions, you know, trying to bring this child up and hold this child back. That was 
my young parenting. And I remember I, I locked him in the stroller and I turned around to get her and I turned back around and he had escaped the stroller. And I was at an outdoor strip mall and I went into the first store and I asked them if they had seen my son. He was the cutest little thing. Talked with a lisp, had this blonde hair that was flyaway hair, and he was very substantial, if you know what I mean. Just a, just a ball of cuteness. And they said, no, they hadn't seen him. Now I'm in a panic. I can't see him. He's not in the store that was closest. I go to the next store. I go to the next store. I use the phone there because this is before cell phones. I call Brian. In fact, I used a pay phone and said, Brian, I've lost Char. I can't find him anywhere. And he said, well, I'll come. And if we can't find him together, then we'll call the police. And I'm sitting there and I am sobbing. I've got the people at Ross, the people at Designer Depot, the people at this little dress shop, they're all announcing it. In fact, even this mall is announcing it to the parking lot. If you see a three-year-old little boy with flyaway blonde hair, and I'm waiting, and I'm just, I'm just crazy with tears. And all of a sudden, these girls come running out of that first dress shop and go, we found him, we found him, he's adorable. He was hiding in one of the, the clothes stalls right in the middle of it. And so I go in, they're feeding him candy, and he's sitting cross-legged up on the counter by the cash register, and he's saying to this one girl, you're third pretty. And they're going, oh, isn't he so cute? And they're talking to him, they're asking him questions, and I'm shaking. And I'm like, I do not dare touch this child. <laughs> and so Brian arrived, and I said, take him away from me. Why I just calm down and begin to breathe again. And I said, I don't trust myself with him. In fact, after that, he pretty much was not let out of our backyard. <laughs> but can you imagine? I mean, it's bad enough to lose a child. But what if that child's the Messiah? And you've been entrusted with him. They had to go back to the place you know, they had to go back. They had to rehearse where they had been and go back to each of the different places they had been until they found Jesus. And they had to look intently at each of those places. You know, when you lose your car keys, do you do this? You go, okay, I walked in the house. Okay, I got out of the car. I was, had them in my left hand because I was doing something else with my right hand. I remember walking in the door. I paused at the washing machine. Okay, then I went into the kitchen. Nope, I went upstairs to my bedroom. What did I do in my bedroom? You know, and you're rehearsing every place you've been. And you're thinking in every place you go, as you're remembering what your journey was, you are looking intently. Well, that's what Mary's doing. She had to return. She lost Jesus. Let's just make this clear. Jesus was out of her sight. And she knew that the way to find him was to remember every place she had been and look intently in those places until she got to the place where she had left him behind. In Revelation to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, remember from whence you have fallen. I'm sorry, it's to the church of Ephesus. Remember from whence you have fallen. He tells them, go back. Go back and do the first works. Remember those places. Go back. Look intently. Rehearse where you've been. Find the place where you lost Jesus. Where was it? That's a different sermon, but I wanted to get it in there. <laughs> they found Jesus after three days. And Mary was visibly upset. I love this, because Mary looks at him and she says, Son, why have you done this to us? Now, you know in your heart that you have all asked the why question. Lord, why am I going through this? Why did you do this? Why did you allow this? We all ask that why question. Then she says, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Jesus answers Mary with a better why. 
why were you searching for me in the first place? Like, who's the one who got it wrong here? You know, when we lose sight of Jesus, and so often we say, why? And the Lord says, wait a second. I'm still here where I always have been. Sitting at the right hand of my father, making an intercessory for you. Where have you been? There used to be a bumper sticker way back in the 60s. And it said, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? In other words, who lost Jesus? Jesus did not lose Mary and Joseph. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. You don't have to search for something you don't lose. Now, Mary witnessed the wonder of Jesus because when she found him, he was in the temple. He was sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening, asking questions, and answering questions. I love the fact, though Jesus is the Son of God, though he's got all the answers, he's asking questions and he's listening. He's listening. And we read that all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Jesus had answered Mary's why question with he was because he was in his father's house, because he was supposed to be in his father's house. That's why, that's why she left him because he was exactly where he should be. Also, he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. He did not come to earth to be Mary and Joseph's son. He came to earth to save people from their sins, to bring people back into a right relationship with God, to make God known to men. And he was doing his father's business. The whole reason he came, as he would say to his disciples, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my father. And yet Jesus willingly subjected himself to Mary and Joseph's parenting. And Mary watched, Mary watched as he increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with men. The treasury of Mary's heart was so full because in that treasury she had stored God's word, God's work, God's witness in her life, in the life of others. And God's wonder in all that transpired. She had such a great treasury to draw from that when Luke came to interview her, all these treasures that she had been keeping, preserving, pondering, meditating on, she was able to pass on to Luke. And because of Mary's treasury, we have been enabled, enriched, enthralled, and encouraged even today, because of what Mary pondered in her heart. So the question is, what is in the treasury of your heart? What are you storing in your treasure box at home? What is most likely to go into your safe deposit box? Probably jewelry. Now, my most valuable possessions, some have value because of this sentiment. And sentiment is because it was given to me by somebody I love. I wear a little silver chain always around my neck. Maybe you've seen it. Because before I did my first Bible study here at Costa Mesa, when we moved back from England, I was sitting in the car, and I was about to come in and speak. And my mom took this off from around her neck and said, here, you need this. You're getting older, and you need something to take away from the lines. But she put this around me. And I wear it every day. And it means so much to me, even though it's probably not worth that much, because my mother gave it to me. She put it around my neck. It reminds me of who my mom is. And about my identity. I am the daughter of Kay. I had someone say, you're not your mother. 
And I said, yeah, but I got her gene pool and it's swimming in me. But it's about identity. It's a witness of love and consideration. And there's some jewelry that has a story attached to it, right? Do you have testimony jewelry? I've got the ugliest white plastic beads in that jewelry box that Char gave me. My mom had given him $40 to buy Christmas presents. He spent 35 at Toys R Us on himself. <laughs> With the remaining $5, he went to the um, thrift store, which was you could give donations for the kids to buy at our school in Vista and give the parents for Christmas. Free wrap came with it. And for $5, he was able to buy us each a gift. And he bought me these white plastic beads that had no clasp. It was just a string of beads. And he said, Mom, I got you pearls. <laughs> but it gets worse. Because that Sunday when I was getting ready for church, he says, aren't you going to wear your pearls? You know, I had to knot them behind my neck to wear them. But you better believe that I did. And I've kept them. And I'll keep those ugly things forever. Maybe there's some things in your jewelry box that are there because of the worth. Unlike costume jewelry, it's the real deal. And you want to preserve it for your children. I have a necklace that my dad gave me. Sorry, guys, please forgive me. That has a huge ruby. I know how much he bought it because I looked it up on Google and it was a deal. But just the fact he gave one to my mom, one to my sister, and one to me. And he put in his little shaky writing, because you mean more to me than rubies. And I wear that necklace every time I possibly can. And it means so much to me, and it reminds me of my dad and how much he loved me. And I can't wait for the day that I get to pass that down to one of my daughters. I also have a locket with a cross on it that my Aunt E.C. wore every day. And two years before her death, she took it off and she gave it to me. got so much value. It's something that gives my life worth and value. When I wear it, I like to tell this story to anyone who asks about it. And I do wear it so others will notice and see, and I can tell them the story of it. My jewelry reminds me of who I'm related to, who my ancestors were. And these are the things that I want to pass down to my daughters my granddaughters, that's by faith, I have only one so far, and my daughter-in-laws. I'm sorry to make y'all cry. <laughs> so God's treasure to us, the things that he's giving to us to store in our hearts, have sentimental value. They remind us of what he has done for us. They remind us of the covenant that he has made with us, our rings, our stories of all that God has done for us. They hold their value. They're unfading, no moth, no rust, no thief. They're authentic, they're real, they're genuine, and we can pass them down to our children. These promises of God, these stories of faith, these personal testimonies of God's work. Let me tell you, isn't it time to throw out all those old bones and all those things that corrode? Isn't it time to clear out the cobwebs? Isn't it time to make room in our hearts for the greater treasury, that heritage that we can pass down? Isn't it time to fill our hearts with the word of God, the wonder of God, the work of God, the witness of God? God has given each one of us such a great treasury. But maybe it's sitting on a shelf. Maybe we're not even realizing these are the things I don't want to go to my treasury and go, well, that's unforgiveness and that's bitterness and that's anger. I don't want to go to my treasury and find that. 
I want to go to my treasure because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I want to pour forth jewels in the greatness of God and talk about angels and shepherds and announcements and glory and old men and old women that praise the Lord with their whole life and see the salvation of God. I want to talk about the wisdom of Jesus, how we astound even the most learned. I want Mary's treasury to be my own treasury. I want the heritage of faith. And that's what I want to store in my heart and give to this next generation that their lives might be enabled, enriched, and enthralled with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, right now I know it's time to do inventory. And I know these are your precious daughters. And I know, Lord, right now that your arms are laden with treasures with us. You have promised in your word no good thing would you withhold from those who walk uprightly with you. And I know that you want to enrich everyone's life here. Lord, that you want to enable, that you want to enthrall. While every eye is closed, I know we're all Christians, but some of you would say, Cheryl, there's things in the treasury of my heart. I want out. I want the good stuff. I want to get rid of the corroded and the ugly. If there's something that you need to get rid of, will you raise your hand right now as a sign that you're getting rid of it? Bless the Lord. Maybe unforgiveness, maybe bitterness, maybe anger, just something that's just, you want it out. Lord, you see these hands. We ask in Jesus' name that this stuff would be out of our hearts, out of our hearts completely. Now, Lord, I ask you, beloved daughters of a king, those who want a treasury, those who are saying, um, if he's passing out treasure, I'll take some. Those of you, and keep your eyes closed, but still, this is going to be fun. Who want the gold, the silver, the beauty that Jesus wants to give you? Will you raise your hand? Okay, let's lift them up. Let's lift them up and let's hold it out like it's just going to, like we're a funnel, like it's just going to go into us right now. Going into our mind and our heart. Hold your hands up. This is private. Nobody's looking. If you've never done it before, it's a good stretch. Just do it. Lord, you see these hands raised? These are your daughters. I am asking in the name, the precious name of Jesus, Lord, that you would pour into your daughters the riches of heaven. Lord, the identity with you, the wonder of all that you do, that you would pour into them all the promises that are theirs through Christ Jesus. Lord, that you would pour into them the beauty of the riches that are theirs in Christ. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places right now in your daughters, Lord. Fill us to such capacity that when our mouths open up, these treasures spill forth and become a heritage for generations to come. We will not hide these from our children, telling them the wonders of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.